Welcome everyone to the Economics Design Podcast. Today, I have the immense pleasure of hosting Philip Rosedale, a legendary investor who founded Linden Labs, the company behind the 20-year-old metaverse called Second Life. More recently, Philip has been working on FairShare, an initiative to allow groups of people to create their own currencies and democratically agree on a daily fee and basic income in order to create a fairer monetary system. Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is great. All right. So both Second Life and Fair Share are chock full of really interesting economic topics that I want to explore. And so we're planning on diving into both of those in this episode. Uh, and I would love to start that off with Second Life. So before we dive into some of the economic details, we should probably set a little bit of a, a groundwork an introduction for the audience. I'm going to take a crack at it, and then you can let me know if there are any important uh, details that I missed uh, to let the audience know exactly how the whole Second Life economy works. So Second Life is a complex user-run economy with a $650 million GDP as of 2022, might even be close to $700 million now per uh, last conversation, and that's larger than several countries, uh, just to put that context out there for everyone. And a key component of that economy is the Linden dollar. So that's a currency that's used for all the transactions within Second Life. And this is something that is tradable for the dollar. It's not just a, a currency that you aren't able to, to pull out. It has a variable price that trades within a remarkably consistent price range. Uh, and there's also an aspect of virtual land um, that people can purchase or rent using Linden dollars. Is there anything in there that uh, I missed that would also be important context for the listeners to know? I think the other thing that is sort of the kind of foundational reason for Second Life existing that makes it a little different than like some other, say, video games, is that from the very beginning, people could build things that would have inherent value, like creative works, basically inside the world. And so the reason that we needed Linden dollars was that we had people from all over the world, and this was especially true, of course, in say 2003 when we launched, that were building things that were interesting to each other that they would want to trade. And so, you know, unlike so many other sort of economic experiments or even video games, there was this core asset that was things people were actually making that they wanted to trade with each other that motivated the the initial requirement for a currency and then all the design stuff that we did to support that as we grew. Yeah, that's absolutely crucial that you have something that's being created in this economy that people intrinsically want. And that it's not just uh, a whole thing cover, uh, driven by speculation, that there's something oh, that people see they have value in in that economy that's really making it all work. Um, so uh, let's, let's dive into uh, some questions. So... Linden Labs issues uh, these Linden dollar stipends to players, both to subscription plan players as well as some free players who have sufficiently old accounts. And this be seen as a form of universal basic income or UBI. And so I'm wondering what impact you saw this have on the economy and if there are any findings from this that you think might apply in other contexts. Well, first of all, and and I think this is really important to just sort of sit and really think about in a world where the economic systems that we use for currency today, you know, the dollar for the most part, are very different than what I'm about to say. Um, at the beginning in Second Life, we knew that people would create things that, that they would want to trade, but we didn't have any feeling that they would necessarily have like a sense of 
those things having so much value that they'd be willing to train trade their own hard-earned US dollars to get Linden dollars to buy stuff from people where they themselves were already kind of capable of making things. So from the very beginning, we were faced with this challenge. How can we give people a currency that they can use to trade with each other? But let's just assume safely that at least at the outset, almost no one would want to actually bust out their credit card and pay for those dollars. And I think this begs a broader question, which is if you made stuff, you know, in a schoolyard with your friends and you all wanted to trade with each other, would it actually make sense for you to bust out your mom's credit card and buy tokens that you could then use to trade with people? And in both the case of crypto and fiat, you know, say US dollars, that's actually the decision that we've all made. We've actually decided that we should buy our currency from someone else for the sole purpose or perhaps the major purpose of trading things with each other. I mean, if you just stop for a second and you think about that, it doesn't make any sense. Nobody, no reasonable person, you know, at a cocktail party would propose, oh, so we want to trade stuff with each other. You know, you made things, Kiefer, and I made things, Philip. We want to trade with each other. Let's go visit this guy and we'll do some external work or use our own savings to buy units of currency that we will then trade back and forth with each other. I mean, that, nobody would do that. No. And yet in the real world, in both, in my opinion, in both crypto and fiat, that is precisely what we do. We need to trade and we actually go buy money from somebody else to in exchange for labor or other money to be able to trade. Crazy. Yeah, that's that's super interesting there. Um, and so on on this uh, topic of having universal basic income there, um, do you see this as something where a um, governments should be looking at it, or are there other groups of people that should be looking at this as an example and maybe getting their wheels turning about how this could have have some implications? Well, you know, uh, let me answer that first by saying something that is, is kind of funny. When GPT first came onto the scene and I had access to it. One of the first questions I asked it was, hey, is universal basic income a good idea? <laughs> and I, I would encourage anyone listening to try these queries out themselves. And, and basically it sort of said, duh, well, that's easy. Um, in every trial in every country over the last 50 years that UBI has been experimented with, it has had positive, um, it has had positive objectively measurable effects on people's welfare. That's, it has had positive outcomes. So for example, when you give people basic income, they're more likely to get a job. Uh, so, so employment increases when you have a basic income. Um, uh, you know, the ability to do things like uh, take care of your kids while looking for work, uh, all of these things get better as a result of basic income. So it, it's basic income is such a weird thing. I think I understand why people are upset or afraid of it. And I think we can dive into that. There are, there are real and appropriate reasons to be afraid of basic income systems, but there's a basic fallacious human belief that everybody else is a free rider other than me. I work hard. <laughs> and one of the things you can do with basic income is I can say, Hey, if I, and I, I did this on Twitter the other day, I said, Hey, I, if I just paid you a thousand bucks a month, because I just liked you, um, no strings attached. I just thought you were a cool person. I, I just, you know, Uncle Philip will just send you this money. I just asked people, so you 
slack off and work less and kind of be a loner and, you know, just go to Safeway and, you know, get the food and booze that you, you need to live with my thousand bucks, right? And exactly zero people say that. Zero people. Nope. But curiously enough, they all believe that that's what everyone else will do. And that's one of the reasons why basic income doesn't uh, get a lot of support is this erroneous assumption that everyone else is a free rider, which is simply not true. That That is really interesting there. Um, and so I'm loving that insight on UBI. And I, I think we can definitely revisit that a lot once we get over to the fair, fair section of the conversation. Um, but I am interested in diving a little bit more into the land side of uh, Second Life. Um, and so um, for, for a little bit of context, we've seen some Web3 focused metaverse projects uh, like Decentraland, for example, have issues with land being bought up by these speculators who rather than actually create something, they just want to see how they can buy this, sit on it for a while and hopefully sell it for someone later, uh, sell it to someone later for more. Uh, as one discussed strategy for tackling this uh, involves land value taxes, basically means there's an ongoing ownership cost uh, levy to the owner based on the current base value of that land. Um, I've personally done a lot of research on this and proposed a variation based on current bids. And I am curious kind of your take here. So Second Life has had a significant period of time to explore uh, the, uh, this problem around speculation about land and currently implements ongoing land use fees. So what's your take on if or how land ownership should be approached when designing metaverses with real money involvement? So land use fees, you know, property taxes, right? Whether improved or unimproved are a vital part of an economy because as you said, they reduce the risk of pure speculation being sort of the only reason or the primary reason that people would buy land. And yeah, we thought about this a lot in Second Life. And and by the way, in the real world, we can see this same problem bear out. One of the reasons that China is facing economic challenges, headwinds right now, is that it has no uh, property tax. And so speculation is rampant. And therefore, when, you, when speculation is rampant, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But what happens is Rampant speculation drives a more aggressive uh, peak and trough in the economic system that it's engaging in. And so what you have, for example, in the case of China is uh, over speculation on land, which is unfortunately then followed by you know, the tragedy of what you do with a bunch of unused land uh, with everybody defaulting on their loans. And so, uh, yeah, we, we see that in the real world. And I, I strongly believe that Second Life is a great proof point and a, a terrarium, you know, for experiment in that regard. Second Life's land taxes are unimproved. Um, so they, they're not based on the utility value of the land. Um, as you touched on, I think um, having, for example, uh, property taxes, which are, say, uh, set by the individual but then you know some multiple of that can be paid to uh you know take the land over because you have a greater use for it all these different experimentations in how to how to manage land use fees i think are are good ones i don't i don't and by the way i think like so many other economic things there isn't exactly a right answer for the whole world this is one of my big complaints with crypto is crypto presupposes that everyone in the world should be ruled by a single uh, a single currency, which just, I don't think there's any merit for that belief. Like it, it makes no sense at all, unless we were all a big 
homogenous blob of people doing identical things, but we aren't. So uh, similarly, I think the right kind of land use fee strategy is a complex function of what everybody's doing, but having no property taxes, no land use fees is never going to work. And as you said, we knew that back in the beginning with Second Life, and that's what you see with some of the Web3 projects. They have no land use taxes. And so basically any utilitarian reason to own land is outweighed by speculation. Yeah, so many interesting points there. Uh, because yeah, with a lot of these Web3 models, they're focusing on the the only fees are on the transactions or on the actual purchase or sale of that asset. There's nothing to, to disincentivize just squatting on, on a piece of land to speculate on it. Um, also a great point on how virtual worlds can really be a good test case to learn from uh, for the real world. It can be pretty difficult um, in a lot of cases to actually implement uh, some of these tax uh, tax strategies. And so uh, getting a place to understand how people actually react to them with real money on the line, I think is really interesting. And hopefully that's something we'll continue to, to see uh, evolve. Actually, that makes me think of a, of a side question of, have you had any... Um, maybe governments or, or large entities actually talk to you and maybe make any changes based off of um, some things that you found out from Second Life? I mean, in a, in a short word, none that I'm aware of, but that kind of doesn't surprise me because we have whole regions of the real world, like the Nordic countries, for example, that do kind of experiment with a lot of these things ahead of their their utility if there is any for the rest of the world um i do think though and and furthermore i think that the fact that second life is still a, a community of about a million people makes it understandably less directly applicable to everybody you know there's a lot of things from advertising there's, there's a lot of i mean a lot of details we can get into that probably aren't a good you know too deep a dive in another direction but the reasons that people use Second Life are really interesting and creates a group of people that are, it's a very diverse group, but it's also a very different group than kind of the average person walking around in Los Angeles or New York or, or Beijing or something like that. So I, applying things from Second Life doesn't to the real world doesn't always work, but we, we have uh, learned a lot. I, I wanted just, I, I was thinking about it before there, I wanted to reiterate something that you said, and I, I think you're probably so in the weeds of this thinking about it that you don't, you know, kind of pull the camera back always, which is to say the web three idea that everybody should own their own land uh, and be able to do whatever they want with it, curiously enough, doesn't lead to a free market environment. It leads to a monopoly. And you, you know this, but I, I think it's really important to restate this and because we saw it in the early years of Second Life. What I mean by that is in the beginning in Second Life, when, uh, for example, there were no uh, frameworks in place for like communities to control like zoning broadly, mm -hmm. you know, like community land ownership and all the stuff that's come of that. What you saw was people speculating, buying a piece of land, and then actually extorting their neighbors by like playing loud music or 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 putting up you know pornography or whatever at, at a box at the outside edge of the property to offend and extort their neighbors into having to buy the land from them. Now, this has been you know studied a lot by economists, and it's basically just the fact that uh, uh, unrevocable ownership of land title. Uh, confers an instant monopoly to the owner. 
And so it essentially breaks the rules of the free markets, which Web3 proponents are so often uh, excited about, you know, making as much a free market as possible. So speculating on land in a virtual world like the central land is a monopolistic, extractive, extortion, extortionary pose if you title the land on the blockchain, which is so funny. So <laughs> the very thing that's supposed to be progress is actually a regression to a kind of feudal monopolistic state, which is what you get with uh, some of these Web3 uh, experiments in in virtual land. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because uh, at some point, yeah, there is there is a reason some government entities exist to create certain types of limits. So well said, well said. Um, so moving on a little bit, um, we've seen a lot of crypto projects attempt to create currencies. Um, I, I say that in in air quotes, as generally these fail to meet the requirement of being a good store of value, a good unit of account, um, due to the really significant price fluctuations there, and in that sense, not really actually be currencies. Um, so it seems to me that the Linden dollar, however, is a great example of how to implement a virtual currency with a legitimized foreign currency exchange rate. So why choose to create your own currency versus just using a foreign currency like the dollar? Well, going back to what we said before, the kind of basic income discussion, if you have an environment in which people are doing something of value and wish to trade with each other, you know, going back to those you know, reasons for money, right? Uh, facilitating trade was the one you didn't mention. And then there's store of value and then there's unit of account, right? Uh, but facilitating trade was the one that in many cases you're trying to do with a currency, you know, it's in the name, a current of, of, of tokenized, you know, exchange. The, uh, the need to enable people that have resources, but want to trade is what should drive one of the questions around how you create a currency. Because if you're trying to create a currency to facilitate trade, you have to have a mechanism where you initially, and in fact, I believe on an ongoing basis, need to redistribute the currency sort of in generally per capita or in proportion to the stuff people are making, which for which I believe the, the only kind of uh, approach we can all agree to is just to distribute it uniformly to all of us. But that, that idea of uniform distribution as compared to using an out... So, so you wouldn't want to use a real-world currency because that then, for example, in a video game, weights the power of the players by their real-world wealth rather than mm -hmm. by their in-world wealth. That creates an unfairness. The other players sense this and they leave the game. So when you create a virtual world in which you are trying to begin again and create your own things of value, which is very much what the offering of Second Life was and is, you kind of don't want people to have to use their real, real world wealth. What you'd like is to make it easy for them to not use real world wealth um, to, to you know, purchase your currency. You, of course, ultimately have to allow it as well because there's plenty of reasons, right? Somebody with excess real-world wealth might want to invest in a lot of, you know, art in Second Life or something. And of course, you don't want to deny them the ability to do that. Conversely, somebody that makes a bunch of money in Second Life, and by the way, there are like thousands of people whose real-life uh, rent, you know, whose real-life income is comes from Second Life. So in, th in those cases, you also want to give people the ability, of course, to switch the local currency back to, you know, whatever their own currency is, whereby they would pay rent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you definitely want to allow full sides of that. Um, otherwise you might have 
those black markets arise. But that was really interesting to have that uh, core motivation of fairness in there. Um, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, let me just say fairness. I'm actually writing something about that that I'll publish soon. Fairness is not a quality. That's really important to say that. In fact, I think a lot of Web3 people would probably go, yeah, uh, to that. Fairness isn't the same as equality, um, mm -hmm. nor does inequality make a system unfair. So if you, if you have a bunch of people in a room and they've all got money in their, they've all got a certain amount of wealth and everybody puts their wealth up on a whiteboard for everybody else to look at. The fairness question is, does that seem reasonable when you read, when you say, does a person's value to the community even roughly match the amount of wealth they have? That I believe is the objective measure of fairness. And so the important question to ask about any economy, about Bitcoin or or China or the United States or whatever is if you posted everybody's wealth and you asked everybody else to say whether they thought that was more or less fair as they looked at it, what kind of number would they give? So there is an objective way to measure fairness, but it's really important to note that it's not inequality. Although inequality as a high level metric, you know, the Gini index being the one that people most typically talk about in the real world. As a high-level metric, it is at least a question to be asked. You know, like there are levels of inequality where, you know, if if one person has literally all the dollars and if one Elon Musk, you know, has all the money in a society and everybody else has none, we can pretty easily assume that that's going to be widely judged as unfair. But if Elon has, I don't know, you know, ten times more money than the average person, we might all actually think that was fair because Elon makes great cars and stuff. That makes a lot of sense. I, I love that breakdown. Um, and still kind of going back to the last question is maybe more of a guide for people who might be trying to build uh, currencies in future games or metaverses. Um, when should a game or metaverse attempt to create their own true currency with real world value? Um, does it require that there be some location-based trade built in the world into the world or a diverse set of transactions you could have um, some threshold of GDP, uh, any other specific factors that teams should think about to decide um, or anything related to to the concept of fairness of whether or not that that uh, fits well in the world. I'm curious of what would be your, your guidelines to help a team decide whether or not they should take that step? Well, the two things that go back to Second Life was, as I said, one was that there was a cap. There were things of value being made bespoke in the world that people would want to trade. And so, you know, that immediately calls out for some sort of a monetary system. The other one is, do your participants all share a common payment mechanism? Now, if you're building a, a Web3 game um, and everybody playing it has a MetaMask wallet, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, that it, the easiest thing for you to do is just uh, at the get-go, you know, you, you could just enable, you know, Ethereum or, you know, any, any mainline token to be used for purchase. But like we talked about before, if the participants, the players are able to create things of value uh, substantially, you know, a lot of them are doing it, then you may well want to consider whether you can give them a new set of tokens, which can then be matched to the new unique value of the things they're creating. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is if you're just making it, I mean, unfortunately, right, as we've seen with Web3, almost all of the time that people make a token, it's just to scam each other. 
to play a gambling game, right? In which most people lose, right? So, so every, almost, every, unfortunately, almost every coin or token that's ever been created on all the various blockchains has been created for the sole purpose of engaging in a gambling game in which there will be a net negative sum outcome. Most people will lose and a few people will win. And of course, you know, the people who are winning are excitedly promoting, you know, said coin. Um, the reason though to really print a coin is to match and enable people to do trade in some newly created asset. So you want to, and, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, this gets to how we manage the monetary policy of Second Life, which is somewhere in between a cryptocurrency and a fiat currency, you know, like the United States dollar. Um, we measured it, we managed it in a way in between. And the reason why was that, as we're discussing, we had to add more currency into the circulation to match the total value of the stuff people were making. And that, of course, is for a real economy, a big challenge. And it was a big challenge for us too. Yeah. So I want to dig into a little bit more of the actual process of managing the currency. So what were the sort of actions that you took or the other components that might contribute to the uh, impressively stable price range that um, Linda dollars had relative to the US dollars over time? Well, the first thing we did, which is the most important thing, and of course, everybody in crypto, I think would agree with and be excited about this. The first thing we did was we got a price signal. We encouraged people to trade. So where other video games would sue you if you put your video game dollars on eBay, for example, you know, which people have done over all time, you know, like World of Warcraft, you know, money sold on eBay. Uh, the companies hated you doing that. We were incredibly enthusiastic about that happening because we knew that it would give us a price signal. We would know what is a Linden dollar worth to the average or the statistically average person, right? As soon as we had that price signal, we knew what our job was because we had a little bit of economic knowledge. And like I say, sometimes I'm horrified by how little people seem to have that are playing in economic stuff, you know, in what okay. But so as soon as we saw a price level, we knew that we just had to keep that price stable, that we knew that was it, right? We knew that one, it had to be openly traded and two, it had to be roughly stable against the, say the dollar or the euro or whatever, um, because if it wasn't stable, people would stop using it for trade, you know? And so that, so that was kind of the easy thing. So, so first of all, we established a price signal by initially encouraging people to trade it for dollars and then build, and then ultimately around 2005 by building our own fully functional exchange so that, so that you had a big, efficient, fair market for trading the currency. Once we had that, we just had to come up with mechanisms to keep the exchange price stable. And we had to do this just like a real country under conditions of both population and productivity changes. So the, 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 how interesting what people were building changed over time, both as a function of their own creativity, which was the major part of it. And to a lesser extent, because we would introduce new features, like people wanted, you know, flexible hair. Okay. And we'd add that feature and that's going to add a whole bunch of money to the economy as people build and sell things that use that capability. So, so basically we had to come up with ways, and we can talk about that next, to match the amount of currency in circulation with the population times the productivity uh, in, the, in the world. Yeah, so I'd, I'd love to, to get into, yeah, how, how to actually introduce that currency in different ways. Because like on the one hand, you could sell to a, directly into the market and that would have a very direct price and be very quick at actually making 
those changes to the the price that you actually see on the exchange versus something that might have a longer time horizon. We already discussed like the the stipend model where you have a very consistent UBI over time, but say you intentionally need to add X chunk of, of currency into the economy. Is there like a more longer form gradual distribution in general uh, or to a targeted group on top of uh, that stipend that you, you might've explored at some point? Yeah, first let me tell you what we do exactly. And then let me, you know, maybe we can suggest or discuss variations on that that might be interesting experiments for things like Second Life or other worlds in the future. Um, the way that we do it is, as you said, it's it's actually sources and sinks, right? As we say, so there are, there are, there are so there's ways that you print new money and put it in circulation. And then there are ways you take money out of circulation. And, you know, the first minus the second is the money supply. Um, the two ways we add money to Second Life, one is basic income. So there are stipends, as you say, which are stable and known and everybody gets the same amount. That prints money and puts it into the money supply. Um, there are also uh, there is also the direct sale of new currency on the open market, which is the unusual and unique thing that we do. That is somewhere in between what a Federal Reserve does and what, say, a cryptocurrency does. So it's interesting in that regard. And come back, to, we can come back and drill on that more as to how we do it. But so we we inject money into the economy by giving it away to everybody as a basic income, and then second by selling blocks of it on the open market at the at the current market price. The way that money comes out of the economy is there's a variety of different sinks that are just mechanical built into the system rules. So for example, if you want to upload a picture, an image, and you want to you know, put it on your wall in Second Life, when you upload that image, there is a fee in Linden dollars and in the language of crypto, that fee is burned. So, so there's sources and sinks and we actively gave the guidance to our population, and of course this is very important, that our goal as a managing company was to keep the exchange rate constant. And so I do want to switch over to, to pear sugar in a second, but maybe one more follow-up question that just had me wondering about. Since you are continuing to uh, add money into the economy um, and you have this kind of stable UBI, um, did you ever... Uh, kind of think or do any experimenting around thinking about um, since UBI has a benefit, is there an optimal level of UBI? Like, should this be in, should the amount be increased in terms of the stipend? Should there be, um, if there was like a one time uh, distribution, would that uh, make things better across a variety of metrics? Is there any sort of thinking about like what would be the optimal level of UBI there? You know, you just proposed an interesting experiment, which would be what would be the what would be the impact on Second Life's economy if we gave everybody at the same time, without warning or whatever, a certain amount of new currency, an airdrop, I suppose, is what we call that in crypto. Um, we've never done that, so I think it actually you raise it. I, I think it would be quite interesting to wonder about it. it. It is certainly the case that if you don't have a recirculation mechanism or sinks that eventually erode away money supply you obviously can't print money indefinitely. Of, of yeah. course, crypto people understandably, you know, make a masthead out of this that I think is incorrect, but it is certainly fair to say that you can't just, you know, if, if we increase the daily income to, you know, a US equivalent of, you know, $10 a day or something, it would ultimately result in, you know, uh, inflation, you know, and, and potentially a, a downward spiral if you just continue to print money. That said, though, having printed a lot of money already in Second Life, I would say that it's it's complicated. And in particular, if you always give out money uniformly to everybody, 
you can tolerate, you can use, you, you can create a lot more elasticity in an economy mm -hmm. than if you just print money and give it out to one person, uh, which is unfortunately what we do kind of with fiat currencies. And that's why we're also pissed off about them is that we're basically giving money to one rich person and expecting that he will trickle it down to everybody else. And of course, we all know that's just utter nonsense in terms of that doesn't happen. And, you know, he keeps it and buys a yacht. So it's just a fail. And that's, you know, part of the reason why cryptocurrency is so exciting is that we could shift to more of these per capita strategies. Um, so yeah, yeah. Love that. So as much as I love chatting about Second Life's economy, I want to make sure that we have time to talk about fair share. Um, so to start off, Sort us off here. Could you give a little bit of background about what Fairshare is and how it works? Well, all along in Second Life, of course, I was always thinking about, hey, could you use something like the Linden dollar to buy groceries in the real world? And how would that work? You know, and obviously we were learning so much about economies, right? Um, so, so first of all, I was always fascinated by this question of whether uh, a digital economy could be used for real world goods and services. You know, that was always in the back of my mind. When Bitcoin happened in 2009, of course, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. But as soon as I read the paper, I, I was in, in 2009, I actually wrote a paper for my board called Single Global Currency, which was me speculating about how you could decentralize the storage of information about balances um, as a means of perhaps just giving the economy to, to everybody in Second Life, because we were at that time as an early, very successful project, you know, we were faced with a lot of regulatory scrutiny and all the different countries that were using Second Life, of course, which which is all of them basically, yeah. all had, you know, in many cases, conflicting opinions on what they wanted the monetary uh, regulatory strategy to be. And by the way, as a side note, it's interesting to note that the problems that Web3 has run into are appropriately all related to speculation. So they're all SEC problems. Those are the big problems. And frankly, they should be because that's where the big bad stuff has happened. In Second Life's case, because the currency was stable, we basically didn't ever kind of have to talk to the SEC because nobody was selling each other, you know, you know, uh, uh, bad, you know, coins in, in a virtue in Second Life. I mean, it happened a little bit, but that it, it wasn't something that was happening very much for different reasons. So we uh, we we encountered a different regulatory, you know, environment, which is kind of fascinating. You know, a whole we do a whole nother podcast on that. Um, but as I looked at all that stuff, I was struck by the opportunity to create a digital currency. And as I said before, I, like crypto people, was really bothered by the way we were printing US dollars and giving them to one rich person, basically, you know, um, almost. So I always thought about this. In 2020, when COVID started, I ran a simulation, which is on the Fair Share website. Uh, and the simulation tested out the idea that if you gave a population of people a fixed amount of money up front and you just let them trade with each other and they were all equally effective at trading things, they were identical people, so to speak, in the simulation. I think a lot of, you know, red-blooded capitalists, if you will, would say, I know what will happen. Everybody will continue to have the same amount of money over time because they're all equally valuable and a free market is a perfect measure of people's value, right? As much as that's a nice aspirational idea and one that, you know, here in the United States we find very compelling, um, it's simply wrong. Um, what actually happens when you give people the same amount of money and you let them all start trading with each other is just like in a poker game, even if they're even if they're identical people, 
weirdly enough, one person ends up with all the money. And, 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 you know, I can't say that enough because that is not what we all grow up believing. It's the, it's kind of a red pill moment with money. It's like, what would you do if I gave you the red pill and I showed you the truth, which was identically skilled people participating in a free market will randomly give rise to one winner that gets all the money and subjugates all the other people <laughs> as their, as their subjects. So once I saw that and I, I kind of did that simulation myself, and then I started reading other economists that have done, you know, much more sophisticated work on that, that observation, which is that if you start off in a free market with everybody having the same amount of money, one randomly chosen person ends up having all the money very quickly. Smarter people than me have worked on this in detail, but I started getting into this question and, and because COVID was happening, I was thinking, oh my gosh, the world is going to become even more unstable on economic grounds because inequality is going to increase in ways that, again, back to fairness, are not mapped to any kind of fair thing. That the world, the United States is going to become even more unequal and it's not going to feel fair. And eventually we're going to have a very bad situation. Like we're going to have a civil war or a revolution that happens around that. So from 2020 on, I started thinking much more seriously about, hey, wait a second, if we really did build some sort of an, uh, you know, a smartphone app that did money, like, is there a way to make it work? And so that led to the basic design process with fair share and ultimately the prototype in discord that we've done so far. And, you know, it brought us to the point where we're just getting ready to, uh, you know, get this thing going as a big project. Absolutely. And, and maybe just to, to make sure it's clear to the listeners, um, like how exactly it works in terms of there being the, the tax rate and the distribution, you want to touch on that a little bit? Yep. So the basic idea is this, if you want to create a stable community where everybody is using an economic token and they feel like things are fair, which as I said before, means they feel like everybody's made as much money as they've given back to the community. They feel like it seems fair. The way you do that is the following. You, um, give everybody an initial allocation. You give everybody a little bit of money. As they trade with each other, you tax as a percentage each one of their transactions, and then you just redistribute that tax back equally to everybody every day, like as, as close to real time as possible. Furthermore, you allow people, and this gets back to that monetary policy and second life discussion, you allow people to actually vote on that tax rate and the amount that everybody gets per day that allows you to actually manage your money supply. So if a lot of people are coming into the community or if the community has sort of struck gold in some way and has some unique thing of value that they want to sell, the, the, the currency owners can basically vote on those rates so they can kind of control their monetary policy as if they were a little country. So, but backing up and saying, the way to make an economy stable and fair over the long term and not have that one winner of the poker game is to tax everybody's transactions, a percentage of them, and redistribute that to everybody else. And if you set that tax rate right, and by the way, right for the United States GDP is probably about 8% sales tax, which circulated back to everybody is about $1,000 a month. And let me just pause and say that again. Everybody's like, UBI could never work because the government would have to print too much money. This is total nonsense. A city today, and this, these experiments are going on now in the United States, a city can levy an 8% sales tax on everybody's transactions, redistribute it to everybody equally, and boom, you have a basic income that nobody had to pay for. That's amazing, right? I mean, that's just an incredible thing. So part of the observation is, so, so, so as soon as I realized that was true, 
from talking to economists, you know, not just me doing thinking about it. I was like, wow, cool. Okay, now all I have to do is come up with a way to build a smartphone app that does that. Now, that gets a little bit more complicated because you get into this debate about how do you count people and how do you give that money out and how do people not make multiple accounts? We all know this. You know, this is why airdrops are typically in arrears, right, in crypto, right? Because if you knew the airdrop was coming, you'd make a bunch of fake accounts and you'd collect more of the airdrop, right? So this problem of people making multiple accounts is kind of a fundamental problem. Now, you can solve that problem in the real world or say if you're WorldCoin, and I, I think some of the listeners here will know that project, um, by say requiring a government ID or scanning your eyeballs or something like that. But that gets into what is in my opinion the real appropriate criticism of UBI, which is you would never want to trade a basic income for all your privacy. We've seen yeah. that we've seen what happened in social media with that, right? I don't think anybody likes it, not even Elon, you know, not even it, it giving giving up giving up your uh privacy in exchange for some benefit is almost never worth it. So UBI has the same problem. So what you got to do is you got to come up with a mechanism that lets you give out, that lets you count whole people that doesn't require like government ID. The way you do that, which is what we've done with FairShare. And this is the, this is the part where, you know, it's like, okay, hold your breath. Like this is a little bit complicated. (laughs) So what we want to do is have this basic income that's funded by a transaction tax. Okay. But what the but the problem is if you just let people sign up for that system, they'll they'll just sign up tons and tons of, you know, accounts that are fake people, right? So what you do instead of requiring ID is you do this magic thing, and the magic trick is this: you let people form groups that are smaller groups of people who all have some connection to each other, or they don't need to have a connection to each other, but they they form these groups. Each group votes on its membership probably democratically, but it doesn't have to be that way. It could be Discord server managers, which is why we did our first prototype of this on Discord. Um, So if a group can control its membership, decide who gets to be in the group, then what happens is each one of those groups gets its own little currency, basically, its own coin that is named, you know, for the group. Then in a world with multiple groups, each of the groups can trade their coins for each other in the usual way that we do in crypto, right? Which or or in foreign exchange, which is simply this concept of a liquidity pool where, you know, two people that want to trade between their currencies establish a fund basically and then you set the price according to the amount you have left in the pool. This is always a hard thing to explain. <laughs> I've spent a bunch of time having GPT, by the way, try to explain market making to me like I was a six year old, you know, because I think it's actually such an important thing because you can't understand these mechanisms without kind of having a an intuition around how market making works. But so what we have is a bunch of little groups and the groups can all trade with each other. Now, what you might think is, well, why would you do that? Well, there, if you think about it, that creates a dynamic tension that stabilizes the price and stabilizes the populations. Because if you built a bunch of fake people in your group, all your other group members are going to throw you out because that's not fair. Yep. And if they know who you are, and you all have a meetup on Zoom every month or something. It does. I mean, it does. It doesn't matter what the mechanism is. But if if they know who you are as neighbors or whatever, they can not allow you to create too many accounts. Also, if a group uh, colluded to create a bunch of fake accounts, it won't work. 
And the reason for that, of course, is the market maker process, because if you just create a fake group that has a billion fake dollars, and this has happened in the real world, right, with countries, that country's currency, that group's currency trades to zero immediately on the open market because nobody wants the currency and nobody's willing to pay anything for it. So what happens is multiple groups trading with each other where each group has its own currency in the way that I described, we believe, we got to test it and see what happens, will create a stable economy. Wow, that, that was a lot there and it is a really interesting idea. Uh, so I want to I dive in a little bit more to the liquidity side. So you mentioned using uh, these liquidity pools, which uh, is the automated market maker uh, type of system. And so you have these uh, people putting in two currencies there, and then you have a price that is in some way derived from the re relationship between the amount of bulk that is, uh, that is put in. And so how do you think about actually encouraging people to provide that liquidity so that people are actually able to trade in and out of these? Uh, so that's a pretty fundamental component of being willing to actually make those trades. So there's two reasons for that. The simplest one is you can let them charge fees as market makers, which is what we do in the real world. So you can charge a fee if you want. Um, of course, if you allow multiple markets with the same coins exchanged on them, uh, then you're going to get the fees being reasonable, right? Like we like we see, for example, in crypto exchanges uh, or, or or again, in, in real world exchanges. So one thing is the, the people providing liquidity get, get fees in, in exchange for their liquidity. The second reason, though, which is kind of cool, is if you just think about it, you want to have the broadest number of people able to buy and sell using your currency as possible. So you are incented as a participant in the economy to pair with another economy. So basically, as as you if you imagine something like fair share starting out, right, you might imagine that you and I might meet in an airport somewhere and say, hey, we both use fair share, but there's currently no market between our two currencies, you know, because you're in Germany and I'm in the United States, whatever. We're going to be very incented to look into creating that market because we both know that if we open up that if we open up that exchange, we create more commerce for both sides. So there is a there is a I guess an explicit reason, which is fees, market market exchange fees that you can directly collect as an agent. And then the second one is the more implicit fundamental goal, which is you you all want to maximize your access. You want to be able to buy beer in a bar in New York when you go there. So you might as well hook up to other people's currencies so you're able to do that. Absolutely. So in terms of kind of the, the broader vision, um, if there's any part that you, you haven't covered already, why do you think that it's so important that fair share exists? And what is the scale of the impact that you hope uh, this initiative will have? The fundamental reason is inequality. Um, I believe that inequality in the United States, for example, is at a point today, inequality plus the unfairness that's perceived when people look at that inequality, as I mentioned earlier. Um, is at a point today where we probably don't make it as a large-scale economy. Um, in history, if you look at uh, inequality indices, you see sort of a point of no return where an economy is not likely to survive if 1% of the people have 90% of the money or you know whatever your statistic is. Um, unfortunately, we're at that point in the United States, my country, um, we weren't there uh, 40 years ago, uh, inequality was much lower. Uh, it was much more fair environment with much more social mobility. So my core goal is to, and, and of course, COVID was a big kicker for this for me, um, is to do what I can do to make it more likely that, you know, people stick around in an experiment like the United States um, and have a fair economy to use. So, and, and then unfortunately, and we touched on this earlier, 
even though it wasn't a lot of people's intentions, crypto actually hastens that destruction because you can see it already in a number of different experimental ways. Um, crypto is actually concentrating wealth in a smaller number of people even more rapidly than fiat currencies mm -hmm. did before it. So even so, if it, putting in another way, if a lot of people were actually using cryptocurrency as a store of value, not as a currency, of course, it, it should be called crypto, <laughs> crypto gold or something, you know, not yeah. cryptocurrency. I, I hate that label. But if if people were using crypto as a replacement for gold, we'd actually have even worse wealth concentration than we have before. So I feel desperately desirous of helping with that problem, um, and so that's why I'm going to put. Uh, a tremendous amount of time and effort into uh, getting this thing going. And that's why we're talking. Yeah, that's such a huge vision and a huge impact. And I, I really hope that you're able to achieve that. Um, and so as as a last question to kind of wrap things up and pull in what we've been talking about, both on learnings from uh, Second Life's Linden Dollar and where things are going with your initiative on Fair Share. What do you think that the future of non-governmental currencies look like in both physical and virtual worlds? One would hope that UBI experiments would continue to catch on and get more visibly successful than, but again, I wonder about this. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful guy named Scott Santons who uh, gave up his income and, and, you know, I think created like a Patreon account and has kind of lived on a basic income funded by other people while advocating very lucidly for basic income. So it'd be interesting to have him on here and ask him what he thinks. Um, my worry is that despite the efforts of people like Scott and the successful outcomes of UBI experiments, I have a sense that getting a government to switch its currency to, to, to add a UBI to it, even if it was done in a privacy respecting way for its citizens, I don't I'm not sure it'll happen. Like, I think it's an extremely optimistic statement um, to assume that even a very democratically fair government would be able to get the wherewithal together to push a UBI solution. So I kind of feel like I hope that in general, real world currencies trend toward fairer forms of exchange. And I think we will see, a, maybe I'm hoping in the next couple of years, we'll see like a small country go for it and do something. Maybe they'll do it on a chain or something, but they'll do something where they have what I just described, some kind of a basic income funded by a transaction fee that is uniform for everybody. And I think that'll be very exciting and promising. And I'll be the most excited person you know, around. And like if fair share didn't wasn't necessary and didn't make it, I'd be absolutely delighted because I wouldn't need to build it. And you know that if we can get to a fairer economy from through governmental efforts and through nation states, then we should do it. But I worry that it won't happen. And so like fair share is like Plan B in that regard. You know, like if we just had to do this ourselves and put an app on our smartphones that was the money app, um, I, I I'd like to help at least have a prototype for that. You know. Um, that it's hugely important in the way that the world has been trending, especially we see how a the evolution of AI continues to to shake things up, potentially shaking up employment. Um, so I'm really glad that somebody is building up the the backup plan for this world. So this has been a really fun discussion. Um, I think we can wrap it up here. Philip, thank you so much for coming on the Economics Design Podcast. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Great.